Okay, so I said we would spend the first few minutes talking, finishing up the last class, a couple of slides that I had prepared that I really want to cover on the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I want to ask the question, what's the meaning of this phrase? And just acknowledge that the Spirit of God is given a home among men. You think about the temple, think about its origins, think about what it served to, to do. You remember that Moses had a tent where he met with God from time to time, but the people didn't have a tent where they uh, interfaced with God. It was only through Moses until the priesthood was developed and until the tabernacle was made. And then when the tabernacle was formed, it became the sort of prototype for the temple. And in both cases, this is the place where the Spirit of God dwelt among his people. I'm going to be struggling with my voice this morning. And if I go into a full coughing fit, you'll understand. I, had, I was fairly sick last week, so I was out all week. But I'm recovered. I'm taking some steroids to try to calm my lungs down, but uh, I'm still having the damage effects from the cold. <clears throat> so I'm well armed with tea here, and I may have to stop from time to time. Okay, so the Spirit of God is given a home among men. And here are several examples of a phrase that's, <clears throat> excuse me, repeated many, many times in Scripture, beginning in Leviticus, over and over again, um, God uses the, the, he says over and over again, I will dwell with them and will be their God and they will be my people. Leviticus 26 verse 12 is where this is rooted. It's repeated seven times in the book of Jeremiah beginning at 7 verse 23 as a matter of prophecy. Okay, so this is after the temple period. This is about when the temple is about to be destroyed. Jeremiah is projecting into the future. And he's talking about a time when God would dwell with him and be their God and they would be his people. Ezekiel does the same thing. And Ezekiel is the priest prophet. He is the prophet who is also a priest. And so he focuses a lot on ideas centered around the temple. And Ezekiel, five times in the book of Ezekiel, this same, this same sentence is, is spoken. Zechariah, also the um, prophet who prophesied the returning king um, and the nature of his kingdom. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11, and one other reference in the book of Zechariah. So this is a common theme throughout the Old Testament, but it doesn't end in the Old Testament. Jesus referred... In John chapter 2 and verse 19 <clears throat> of the temple of his body referred to the temple of his body he said destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days what's he talking about well they thought he was blaspheming against the temple. the Pharisees thought he was blaspheming against the temple how can you how could anyone think that they could cre recreate such a holy structure that so much piety went into building in a mere three days. Well, Jesus said no. He, the, John comments that he was talking about 
the temple of his body. So, Jesus' body was, in fact, the home of the Spirit of God. It was, he, he was himself the essence of the Spirit of God. But then we also have, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, Christians' bodies talked about as being the temple of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit <coughs> is, our, is in residence, and because he is in residence, we ought to behave ourselves in, a certain, in certain ways. And we ought not to behave ourselves in certain ways. Then, the New Jerusalem, in Revelation chapter 21, you see the concept extends into the future with uh, the projection of the glorification of the kingdom at the heavenly throne. Revelation <clears throat> chapter 21, verse 3, the same sentence is mentioned again to reemphasize that God will have a new kind of presence with his people. <clears throat> and that that uh, presence will be even greater than the presence. You see, each time this concept moves forward in history, the glorification of the temple becomes greater, doesn't it? So we started out with a, with a tent in the wilderness. We progressed to a physical structure that was more glorious than the tabernacle. We progressed to the body of Jesus Christ, who is the very essence and home of the Holy Spirit on earth. We progress to Christians, individual Christians now that are scattered throughout the world and bringing the temple in proximity to the entire world instead of just to the Jews. And then in Revelation 21, we have a projected kingdom as in its final glorified state in 21 verse 3. So this is a logical progression that occurs throughout Scripture. It, this is... <clears throat> you want to stop drop? This pardon? You want a cough drop? I got one in my pocket. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> I told you. I told you I came well prepared. Okay. So this is one of the great, to me, evidences that you can present to others of the cohesiveness of the Bible, even though written across fifteen hundred years. You don't see the picture of the entire Bible until that last piece goes into place. Like a puzzle. Okay. So, Temple of the Holy Spirit. It's hard to explain how this could be an attitude dwelling in us. If you think about this, what was all this culminating to? What was... What was the tabernacle and the temple? What was it leading up to? It was actually leading up to the presence of God with his people in heaven. It's not just indicative of an attitude that Christians are supposed to have, any more than it was an attitude that the Jews were supposed to have or an attitude that the people in heaven are supposed to have. It is the presence of God within us. It's hard to understand how this could be through the agency of the word of God. Yes, the scrolls were in the tabernacle. The scrolls were kept in the temple that contained the word of God. But that's not the point. The point is that God himself is with his people in this, in this way. And I'm sorry that as a Western rationalist and as a scientist, I can't explain that to you in scientific terms. Because this is outside the reach of science. 
and it was part of partly re Western rationalism thinking that brought this idea of the agency of the word into being. And I, I think that we have to see past that. We have to go, go back to the, Jesus wasn't writing from a Western rationalist viewpoint. He was writing from the viewpoint of a Middle Easterner and in 2,000 years ago, and Moses wrote 1,500 years before that about things that happened since the foundation of the world. We have to see past our own blinders in order to understand how the Holy Spirit could be the actual presence of God dwelling in us. How does he dwell in us? Well, how does our spirit dwell in us? Back to our first class. Our spirit has a home in this body. It's not really at home in this body because this body is better fitted to the soul than it is to the spirit. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the two bodies. We're going to be given a body someday that's better matched to our spirits. The kids are getting their pictures taken outside and going with all the squealing about. <laughs> okay, so I don't think, and um, I think that the scriptures bear this out, and I, and I will go to greater lengths to prove this in the last class, that this is not just a matter of the Word of God being in us and the Spirit of God being in us by proxy through the Word. I think this is the Spirit, the actual presence of God being in us. Otherwise, we could hardly be called a temple. And there are some things that the Spirit does for us in Romans chapter 8 that the Word of God alone will not do. So no, our bodies are a literal dwelling places of the Holy Spirit if we're God's children. That's my thesis. And that's where I wanted to end the class. Now I'm going to open it up to your comments and also welcome any rebuttal. If anybody just has a different idea, they think I'm all washed up. This is a, this is a, you know, I said this is a safe place and all of your ideas are safe here. So whether you agree with me or not, or whether you're toying with the idea and want to flesh it out a little further, please let me hear from you, Jay. Well, you well pointed out a little bit ago that the scrolls were in the tabernacle. Yes. But that is aside from the Lord dwelling in the tabernacle. Yes. Simultaneously. Yes. And so it's not surprising if many of the things that are said to be done for us through the Holy Spirit are also said to be done through us through the Word of God. Amen. Right? Because the Word of God are the words of the Holy Spirit. You can't separate a person from his words. Um, I, I can write a book, and you all can read it, and you can say that, that uh, you knew me through my words, and that would be true. But if you didn't know me in person, their experience would be quite different, wouldn't it, than if you just had read a book that I wrote. So it's a matter of relational um, status between us and God, I think. What the, the whole point of this is, it's about a relationship. And it's the relationship, after all, that is the important thing. And the words of God are absolutely, they're holy, they're, they're scripture, they're, they're the, the things that we read and the way that we come to understand this relationship with you. We wouldn't understand it if it wasn't for what the Holy Spirit wrote. But to say that we only, the only relationship we have with the Holy Spirit is with the words that he wrote kind of cheapens the relationship, doesn't it? If you said, well, I know Durrell because I read a book that he wrote, well, that, that may be true, but it sort of cheapens the relationship we have if I know you personally. You know, you would say, I know Durrell because I've seen him. We uh, were together in the same building for many years. 
So I know him pretty well. You wouldn't say, well, I know him because of something that he wrote. Well, you might know more about me because of something that I wrote. You might uh, understand the way my messed up mind works a little bit more because you read something I wrote, but you don't know me personally unless you've met me. And uh, so that seems to be the point of, of the dwelling of God among men. He wants to be known by us, and you read this throughout Scripture, don't you? The Scripture is rich with language like this. To know him and to be known by him. And that's not just to know something that he wrote. That's to know him personally. All right. Anybody well, else? I think, too, I know from experience, I have confused those two things. It's true the word needs to dwell in me. Absolutely true. Yes. But aside from that, God needs to dwell in me. Mm -hmm. Those two things are simultaneously in me, and I need to differentiate the two. And I They're connected. That, yes, but I believe I, that the truth of one doesn't negate the truth of the other. Right. That's right. Can we know him without the word? <laughs> God, it, uh, Otherwise, it, it's up to me to figure out. And it's, and it's not up to me, it's up to the word. The, the Christianity is, a, is a, intended to be a taught religion. Right? God put it in the agency of men to teach the word of God to other people. And it's through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to save, right? But at the point of salvation, the Bible speaks very clearly of having marked by the Spirit. So I agree with what you say is true. But the idea that there is a, a, a false idea that comes out, and I'm not saying this is, comes from you, but I, I'm just in order to keep some clarity, that the Bible in us is the equivalency of our salvation or our spiritual condition. We know that that's not true. We know people who are experts in the Bible, who study it for a living for their entire life and are true experts, linguistic experts and experts in history and archaeology and those kinds of things who study the Bible their entire lives don't believe a word of it. So to reduce the relationship between a Christian and God to the word of God being in us uh, kind of makes that sort of insipid. And it's not that there are big Christians and little Christians. So if you're a Christian that knows a lot, that you're up here somewhere, and if you're a Christian that doesn't know very much, you're down here someplace, that's not true either. Because being a Christian puts you in a relationship with God, a full relationship with God. You are saved, and you have this relationship with Him. Knowing more about the scripture makes you useful in the kingdom in some ways. It enriches your life in some ways, and it helps you enrich the lives of others in some ways. But it doesn't make you big Christian against little Christian. That, that script, I think we, we can all agree that that would be unscriptural thinking. So it is the identity that we have as children of God that's important. That's conferred upon us by the Holy Spirit. According to Romans 8, it's just as clear as it can be. If you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, um, then you're a Christ. If you're living according to the Spirit, if not, you don't belong to Him. It's just that simple. It's, a, it's the Spirit in our hearts, Romans 8 again, that, that, uh, and also in Galatians, uh, that cries out, Abba, Father, that te teaches us that we're adopted children of God and heirs according to the promise. Yes? Uh, the thought of 
it being just the word and not the actual spirit of God, for me, is hard to reconcile with um, pre-Gutenberg Christians Mm -hmm. because there's so much that because we have the written word in our hands every day, we're able to commit to memory in a way that would have been a lot more difficult before we had that. And so when I think about the fact, I think sometimes we confuse when we say it's the gospel is the power to save, we think the gospel. But this isn't the gospel. The gospel's in this. This talks about the gospel. Very good point. Um, So I think sometimes we just, we, because we're so used to having this in our hands, we forget that that is a very recent development. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. She's talking about pre-Gutenberg. Of course, you know what that means. Before everybody had a Bible in their hands, Christianity was quite different, wouldn't you say, for that 1,200 years before that came along. So um, before it began to disseminate, and, and actually having a Bible in your paws is, is even still, I mean, for many years after Gutenberg, books were still very expensive, only the wealthiest could afford them. So the idea that everybody has a Bible in their hands is completely modern, and in order to see this from the broader perspective, you've got to understand what Christianity must have been like for those who showed up in a, in a uh, church building uh, once a week at the most and heard someone read a little bit from the, uh, whatever scrolls they might have had or whatever scriptures they might have had available to them, some lectionary that was sent to them by the leadership. So... Uh, again, it's it's this idea of processing everything through our own view. Um, the the passage that talks about let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Ephesians chapter three, um, uh, five nineteen. I confuse it with Colossians three sixteen. Those two passages are parallel to one another. One talks about letting the Spirit of God dwell in you richly. The other one talks about letting the Word of God dwell in you richly, indicating a kind of equivalency there actually or perhaps a coexistence there um, this letting the word of God dwell in you richly if you recall from John chapter 1 who's the word Jesus is the word he's the ultimate culmination of the word so the word is not just words on a page to them less than to us to them the word was everything that proceeded from the mouth of God That would have included everything that was included in the Old Testament scriptures and the little bit that they had, the bits and pieces that they had written down at that time, and the part that was inspired in those individuals within churches who had the ability to prophesy and uh, speak according to the word of God with special knowledge. That even, that little phrase, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly would have meant something totally different to people living in the first century than it often is taken to mean by us. So this kind of reductionist thinking, well, we have the word of God, it's here in the Bible. Well, that's true in a manner of speaking, but the word of God is what was spoken by the mouth of God. It was what was uttered by Jesus as he walked around on the earth and taught his disciples. It's, it's, um, well, let, let's move on to the next lesson. It's the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> yes, Jay. There's one word that connects both of those. Both the, the word, as we think about it in the scriptures, plus the living word. 
for the Word dwelling in us plus God dwelling in us. Knowing each of those, it's connected to knowledge, and knowledge is an experience. I, I can learn what the Lord is going to do, what He intends for me, how He's going to bless me, and so forth, but I experience His presence and His work in my life, and then I can connect those two. When I'm teaching a class like this, I try to think both ways, the ways that everyone in the class is thinking. And that, what you just said, although I agree with it, comes across to some people as being confusing. Because uh, talking about a sense or a feeling, which is not really biblically connected much to the Spirit of God. Now, there are fruits of the Spirit that have to do with our feelings, right? Joy, for example, is a fruit of the Spirit. But actually, the sensing or feeling of the Spirit within us is, a, is an idea that takes people to a place that they can't reconcile in their minds. I know what's meant by it, um, but it can also be the source of, of some confusion. So I, I do appreciate your comment, and I don't disagree with it. Um, I just want to be cautious that we don't uh, move over into a realm that just blows some people's heads off. <laughs> um, and because so you, you begin to, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> we'll put yeah. it back together. <laughs> it's shattered. <laughs> well, how do we see the grace of God? Pardon? How do we see the grace of God? How do we see the grace of God? Well, you know, the scriptures talk about his grace. But then uh, Barnabas was sent to the work where Paul was busy and he saw the grace of God. And it's one thing to study about it. It's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to see it. Yes. And that's what I'm talking about, having a knowledge of his presence, of his work, seeing his grace in my life. Yes. That's probably a better way to explain it. Well, it's, I don't know if it's a better way to explain it, Jay, but it probably brings more people in under the umbrella. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so thank you for that. Uh, we do want to be, uh, we want to do be, be mindful of where everybody's at and move people along at a pace that, that they can uh, be comfortable with and not, we don't want to go over the edge because I've been very careful in this class and you've known all along, I've been, I've been saying consistently, we're not talking about the miraculous here. That's a conversation for another day. We're talking about how the Holy Spirit affects individual Christians now. <coughs> we're looking at the way, ways that the Bible illuminates that and and uh, so what we've done is and yes I've shared my opinion some but we've looked at specific passages of scripture we've looked hard at them and we've asked people to ask themselves the honest question is the spirit of God living in us or not in, in a in a way that's literal even if it's um, not uh, in keeping with our rationalistic ideas and I think the conclusion to that that I have to come to and that I've shared with you all, some of you all have come to the same conclusion, maybe not all, but, this, but that that uh, is quite literally true, that the Spirit of God is in us, and if not, we don't have an identifier um, that separates us from the rest of the world and that indicates such a close and intimate relationship with God and a kind of deep knowledge of God that he allows us through the Spirit that we would not otherwise have. Um, yes. 
it's just hard to explain to people, you know, that you have taught and been baptized. It's hard to explain to them that the Holy Spirit's not a feeling that you get. It's just something that helps you in your Christian life through prayer and through the, through the work that you do for God. But it's very hard to explain to people that when they get a measure of the Holy Spirit, and not the Holy Spirit, but when they get a measure of it, it's not something that you're going to feel. Yeah, I, I, and I talked to a guy once when he was baptized, he said, I didn't feel anything. Yeah, right. <laughs> I said, well, you know, maybe you should feel something. <laughs> I felt better. But I yeah, I, I did too. I felt relief. I felt, I felt <laughs> a tremendous burden had been removed from my shoulders. I think he was looking for something different than that, though. And, and um, that, that didn't happen a lot um, in the number of people that I baptized, but it did happen. Um, maybe they didn't do it for the right reason. Maybe, or, or maybe, the, their, maybe their experience didn't match their their faith, you know, if you have faith in God and you want to be baptized to become a child of God and you believe that God put the Spirit of God in you, then what, what more than that, I mean, this, is, this whole operation is based on faith. What more than that do you need? A preconceived notions were one of the reasons that the Jews missed the Messiah. Yes. They were looking for something specific. And maybe your individual was looking for something specific and he's just looking for the wrong thing. And he didn't see it. Okay, I'm going to move on and I'm going to let you guys play with this more in your minds. I've got 15 minutes to get through a whole class. We probably covered most of what I intended to cover in my last class. So, um, let's... Uh, Bring the series to a close. I talked about all this in the preamble. Some of you were, were not here, but I'm going to pass over that just in the interest of time. So today, spiritual conflict in the life of Christ. The battleground that was laid, and I, because we don't have much time, if you'll excuse me, I'm just going to talk through these slides, and then I'll, if we have any time left over at the end, we'll open it up. Let's talk about the cultural milieu of Israel in the first century. First of all, the dominant force in the world at the time that um, the Romans came into power was, of course, Greek influence, and it covered the Roman Empire as well as the rest of the world. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, animations, animations, and in, in, uh, I copied and pasted, and then I put in some things and moved things around. Okay, I'll just put it all up here. Okay, so Hellenism. And I have here the words cultural degradation, and there are a lot, of, a lot of intellectuals who would take offense at that because they see Hellenism as the enlightenment of the world, right? Mm -hmm. Ideas of Greek philosophy that brought us into deeper thinking and inductive reasoning and those kinds of things that led to the, to the Renaissance, we believe, had seeds here. And it has brought about a tremendous benefit to the world in terms of scientific developments and medical advancements and the sorts of things that keep me alive uh, are in part uh, can be taken back to, to Hellenism. But along with that period of enlightenment came a lot of cultural degradation uh, that the Jews could see very early on and they took offense at the Greek culture coming into many of the Jews, the purists, had a, took a real offense at Greek culture coming into Israel. 
And so you have this battle that's set up between the, the Maccabees, um, who are fighting against the evil Roman influence, but they, just as much they were fighting against the influence of the Greeks that was coming in from the West and very much took offense at the, at the kinds of changes that they were seeing, even to the point of the, 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 uh, the games, the, the Olympic games coming to Israel. That was a, to, to have naked men wrestling in the, in the Colosseum was a huge offense and having Greek gods being sacrificed to in the Greek and Roman gods sacrificed to in the Colosseum, huge offense. Having gladiators taken from among their homeland, the people of their homeland. So we have, on one hand, a period of enlightenment that's accompanied with what the Jews perceived and what Jesus saw as cultural degradation. And he confronted not the ideas that brought about the scientific advancement, but what he brought, what he fought against was the cultural degradation that came along with it and the robbing of the Jewish spirituality from the Jewish people. So along with that comes Herod and the Romans. And with Herod and the Romans, you have the Herodians who were Herod loyalists among the Jews. You had Roman citizens who were dwelling among them as sort of the higher classes and having control over the Jews who were the lower classes. And you had Jews who were becoming partially Romanized and collecting taxes on part of the Romans who were the bitter enemies of the conservative Jews. You see what a mess that has been created in this now what used to be a purist Jewish culture is now just a melting pot of ideas from all over the world. And so Jesus, one of his greatest confrontations was his battle with the Roman authority, confrontation over authority. What did Herod say, or what did Pilate say to Jesus? Are you a king? That's what he cared about. Why did Herod seek to have Jesus killed? Here's somebody that, according to prophecy, was going to take over the throne. So he went to pretty great lengths, I'd say, to eliminate that possible threat. Okay, so then out of the Maccabean period arises a period where there's this sort of strange religious development. You have the Sadducees on one hand who represent the, the priest class. The priests were the ones who had the, the Torah on their side that told them how to take care of all the ritualistic practices in the temple. And so they, that was kind of their badge of honor, was that they had the they had the law on their side because they were the traditional priests. Well, the tradi traditional priesthood had actually gone by the wayside. Now the high priesthood was for sale to the highest bidder. <coughs> Whoever paid Herod off the most money got to be priest that year. Um, but never mind that. We still have the traditions on our side. And so they were kind of like the temple police. And so all the chief priests that you hear about, uh, the ones that captured Jesus <coughs> and took him in, they were the, the authorities. China has a very much an analogy to this system where they have this accepted religion in the country. And if you're part of the accepted religion, then you're under the headship of accepted heads of the church. And it's those accepted heads of the church that can actually cause 
trouble for Christians who are not part of the accepted church, you see, because they're like sort of like the chief priests. They were the establishment religious people who now have authority over all of the lower class religious people. Um, very much the same kind of a system. That's the way the Jews lived under the chief priests. The chief priests were the religious police. They had all the authority of the Roman government behind them. They were the establishment religion. And then you have the Pharisees, who were just people from the back streets, who knew their Bibles really well, studied under Jewish rabbis. Maybe they were, had come from wealthy families. Some of them did, some didn't. But they were respected because they understood the law. And that was their downfall. It was the respect that people had for the law that they invested then in the Pharisees, much the way people do in pastors today, right? He's the guy who knows everything about scripture, so we gotta put all, invest all of our, our confidence in this person, and then they forget that he's a person, right? And all kinds of problems arise from, from that uh, failed assumption, so often failed assumption that these people are somehow superstars. <clears throat> Uh, well, the Pharisees and the scribes were the superstars of the day. The scribes were the educated ones. The Pharisees were the legalistic ones, the ones who had attained to a certain legalistic piety. And then Jesus comes along. And this is where spiritual conflict shows up in the life of Christ. First of all, at the beginning of his ministry, Matthew chapter 4, head to head with Satan. Satan presents these these three temptations to Christ, and he defeats Satan in those things. And Satan, in his typical manner, when he's defeated a few times, decides to go and take a, take a break for a while. He'll come back. Mm -hmm. um, but why? Why um, did Jesus do all this to start with? He said in Mark chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, he, that famous um, dialogue by the... Uh, by, in Caesarea of Philippi, his disciples came to him and he asked them, who do, <clears throat> excuse me, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Jeremiah, or Elias, or one of the prophets, and he said, well, who's, who do you say? And Peter says, what? Christ. Christ. Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonas, for the flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I'll give to you the keys to the kingdom of God. He said, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Upon this rock I'll build my church, in your English translation. You know, in the Greek and Hebrew, there's no equivalent to what we call church. It's the word assembly. It's a called out group of people. Upon this rock I will build my group of people, basically is what he's saying here. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In, throughout our New Testament in English, we, we substitute a word. It's really a, basically an old German word that, that really literally does mean church in the kind of the way we think about it. But that, that word never really appears in the Bible. It's always ekklesia in Greek. It's always an assembly of people. It's always a coming together of people. This is not a church, except in as much as the church is an assembly of God's people. Um, that may come as a shock to you to hear after all these years, but it's not a biblical term. 
And you've got to think a little bit differently than that, even when you hear us use the word church. And I, I use it as much as anybody, probably. But we've got to remember that, that in, in the literal sense that you read about it in the English and, and even back in the old German dictionaries is not literally what the apostles of Jesus was talking about. Or even in the Old Testament, the word doesn't occur. It's always a calling out. Um, this is... Here's an aside, as if I have time for a lot of asides. Um, What's going on? Ecclesiastes, the preacher, the word Ecclesiastes, what do you see in there? Ecclesia. Okay. So, that's our word church? <laughs> I don't think so. No, it's a, he's calling people out to listen to us. A sermon. But, um, Jesus might have called out people to the mountain to teach them. That was a church. That was an assembly according to the biblical languages. The biblical language. That gathering in Jerusalem was a church. It was an assembly. Okay? In Acts chapter 2. So think when you, when you hear the word church, think stop thinking church the way we think of it and think Gathering of God's people. Think about assembly. Okay? But that's the reason Jesus came. And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that is a meaningful phrase. But he gets, Because what he's saying is there's going to be a fight. And I'm going to win it. Then we have, in the last two minutes, the Sermon on the Mount which, in my mind, is a battle against everything that was taught by the scribes and Pharisees. You think this way because this is the way you've been taught to think. But I say this, and this is the way I want you to think. So it's getting rid of the traditions. You have heard it been said by them of old time, thou shalt not. But I say unto you, and what Jesus said was always more to the heart and more to the essence of the person than what the scribes and Pharisees had taught and what the law had taught. Not that the law didn't come from God, but that the law was superficial in some ways and Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the matter. And in doing so, he's upending everything that the scribes and Pharisees had taught. And this is where the battle begins and this is also where it ends because they're the ones who are going to crucify him. He had a battle with the demons and unclean spirits, as we pointed out in the previous class. There was never a time before or since where you see so many instances of demons possessing people and Jesus casting them out just by saying, go. And then finally, the crucifixion saga. We could spend a week on this. We could spend one minute on this. You all know the story, and you know how the battle played out. More about that battle is said in Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter chapter 3 and chapter 4 about what took place when Jesus died. <clears throat> but the, we know there was a battle with death over which Jesus came out conqueror. And that has changed the world ever since. Why? Please let me go through just a few verses. Luke 4, 43. But he said to them, I must, pre I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. 
Now is my soul, <clears throat> John chapter 12, 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And finally, John 1837, and you see what I'm doing here is I'm allowing Jesus to define his own purpose. Pilate said to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Thank you.